0: Good afternoon. I'm Al Crest. Sue Ellen Browder is the author of Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement, and also the new book, Sex in the Catholic Feminist. It's an extraordinary story of how she, uh, as a writer and investigative reporter for Cosmo magazine, uh, one of the chief uh, new publications of the new women's movement of the late 60s and early 70s, uh, how she went about really propagandizing for the sexual revolution, and how she now tirelessly works to make reparation and undo the damage uh, of that work. So, Ellen, it's a pleasure to have you back here. Thanks.
1: It's a joy to be here. Thank you, Al.
0: Well, let's go. Let's go back uh, to those days. Tell me, um, why did you get involved in what today we call, you know, the women's liberation movement?
1: How how did I get how did I get working at Cosmo? <laughs> because it was kind of the same thing. Okay. Well, when I was I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism and I graduated with a good degree in journalism. I was told to, that the people have a right to know. Right. I went to a uh, a newspaper in California, and I was fired for being pregnant. In those days, you were fired for being
0: pregnant. <laughs> right. Right. Wow.
1: Yeah. And so I went to New York City, I applied for a job in the New York Times, and it turned out, it didn't say where it was, but it was a magazine job, and it turned out it was a Cosmopolitan magazine. Oh. And okay. I had been very interested in Cosmo, because as a young girl growing up in Iowa, uh, in a small town, I thought this was just, oh, so glamorous and so wonderful. And uh, so I took this job, and it was while I was on staff that I found out that all of the stories that were making about these women having these fantastic... Sex lives and running around, jumping in bed with, in and out of bed with men, and going to Europe and all this stuff. They were all made up. Wow. They, were, they were manufactured Helen Gurley Brown who was the editor who had turned Cosmo from a special interest magazine or for, from a general interest magazine into a sex magazine it was a playboy clone Cosmo was a playboy clone mm-hmm. um, she had turned it into a sex magazine and she even had a list of rules yeah. on how to make up stories about these women living these fantastic lives so so this uh, these rules in
0: fact uh, if I remember correctly you actually actually uh, take a look at uh, the, uh, the theologian Jacques Ellul's uh, definition of propaganda, and you apply Brian. that to uh, the rules here at Cosmo. What were those rules?
1: Yeah, yeah, because Jacques Ellul said propaganda is half-truth, Limited truth and truth out of context. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, a whole bunch of lies. It's, it's it's much more subtle than that. And that's you know the father of lies in other words uh, lies outright. Right. He always twists the that's truth. Right. right. That's true. And uh, so this is this is a matter of twisting the truth and in ways that people couldn't easily see you know, mm-hmm. um, she had created a list of rules on how to lie to be, um, write these stories, and when I was writing Sex and the Catholic Feminist, or before I started writing it, I found that list of rules in the garage. <laughs> I didn't, I had kept it for 50 years, and when I was writing Subverted, I could not find it, and I found it in a box in the garage, so I have the exact words that she, she said. Wow. Yeah. Give us, yeah. give us a so few of them. Yeah. Here's one of her rules. She says, unless you are an, a recognized authority on a subject, profound statements must be attributed to somebody appropriate, even if the writer has to invent the authority. <laughs> okay. Oh. So I mean, this there was there was no there was no um, pretending that we're telling the truth here. This was right, uh, you know, just tell to lie, right? Yeah. Right? So you have to invent the authority. So here she says, for example, um, it, this is bad. This is bad. All psychiatrists are basically Freudians. And says, of course, that's not even true. Right, right. But the, but this is better. This is the way you're supposed to say it. According to one practitioner who specializes in group therapy, all psychiatrists are Freudians. <laughs> so, okay, so you've created a... a, um, a, a uh, Authority here yes. to tell us this lie, so presumably people will believe it. Wow, this uh, amazing. But, but I mean, it, this she now Helen Gurley Brown was a uh, advertising copywriter, and this was just basically ad copy yeah. selling the Cosmo lifestyle.
0: Yep, yep.
1: So how did, here's how another one of her rules. Oh yeah, go ahead. You want another one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, try to locate some of the buildings. Restaurants, nightclubs, parks, streets, as well as entire crazed histories in cities other than New York, even if you deliberately have to plant them elsewhere. Mm. Okay? Most writers live in New York City. This was in the 70s. 92% of our readers do not. So by making up these women and planting them in Cleveland and Des Moines and Albuquerque, we made the sexual revolutions a very Sexual mores, which were not that widespread, we made them look a lot more widespread than they were.
0: Wow. That is vicious.
1: Oh. You know, uh, Church Father John Chrysostom said the problem of evil is that it is usually disguised as goodness. Right. Right. And this was, you know, it was supposed to be, you know, this is just fun, honey, just just go for it. This yeah. is the way all happy people are living. And if a young woman is insecure or doesn't think she's good enough in some ways, then then she reads these things and she thinks, ah, if I live like that, then I'll be as happy as those women are in that magazine. Yeah. yeah. But, of course, they weren't real. Did did you suffer
0: any um, p- pangs of conscience? I mean, because you were a trained journalist at that point. I mean, you you. I'm sure that uh, you had all kinds of training uh, at the University of Missouri on uh, how to quote. Authorities properly, and uh, you know the use of unnamed sources and all that business. Uh, how, how did what you do with that?
1: You know what? It's very interesting because when I went to that first, cause you remember now? I'm a I'm a young lady. I'm only 20, 22. I get out of college. I go to this first newspaper that I was on, and the woman sitting next to me, who had also graduated from the University of Missouri, started telling me how to make up stories. <laughs> She says, she says, you know, Smith and Jones sound like made up names, but if, but the third most popular name in the uh, country is Johnson. So if you have a Mary Johnson in New York's in uh, Los Angeles there might be a million of them or at least there's you know you know a thousand and nobody's going to know which one it is. Wow. So use Johnson. So at, the minute I got out of J school and got into the real world yeah. as I thought as I called it <laughs> which was really the unreal world right? Yes. The fantasy world the image world yeah. begin to encounter journalists who are making up stuff that's why when I see some some journalist on the New York Times who says, "Oh, we made up this stuff I'm like, "Oh yeah, all right, of course you did, <laughs> <laughs> and so then I get to New York City. And, and I go into this magazine, and they're still making up all this stuff. All the women on the magazine, Betty Hel- Helen Gurley Brown was married to the same man for over 50 years. My uh, <laughs> article's editor was married with a child, very happily married. These were married women making up these stories. And I'm like, oh, I guess this is the way the real world works.
0: Wasn't her famous book, the, at least the first one, Sex of the Single Girl? Sex
1: in the Single Girl, followed by Sex in the Office. That was her. <laughs> Sex in the Office. Told told young women how to seduce men in the office. Oh and now Lord. we've got the Me Too movement running around, yeah. saying, "Oh, we don't like this. We don't like this." Well, I'm sorry, but it was taught to women. Yeah. And it, they taught how she taught women how to seduce men. That's yeah. what she taught. Wow. You make
0: uh, a great point in uh, many great points in sex and the Catholic Feminist, but you have a section in there on Betty Friedan, uh, who of course yeah. is often credited uh, her book uh, The Feminine Mystique credited being kind of the, the early Bible of uh, second wave feminism. The, the Feminine Mystique. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell me, um, what did Betty think about Cosmo?
1: Well, Betty called Cosmo quite obscene and quite horrible. Um, I was on staff, and so what I was very much aware of when I was there, I was actually, I I look back now and think I was one of God's spies, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Because I I saw that the feminist movement that was being led by Betty Friedan and the uh, sexual revolution that was being promoted at Cosmo were two radically separate movements. Interesting. And and Helen Gurley Brown tried to get Betty Friedan to write for the magazine, and she called the magazine quite obscene and quite hor- horrible. She wouldn't have anything to do with it. Wow. So she, she I, I look back on Betty Friedan. Betty Friedan has, has certainly was no charmer, right? Okay? Right. And she did have Marcus, Marxist tendencies and right. all this stuff, but she did defend the family. She, I think of her as a family feminist. Interesting. And she did not like the sexual revolution, and she did not like sexual politics.
0: Yeah. I know that there was conflict uh, with uh, Kate Millett and uh, uh, Betty Friedan and Jermaine uh, Greer, Gloria Steinem. Uh, did, but did Betty Friedan support abortion? I mean... But, uh, she did. Yeah, because Gloria Steinem well, said it's the qua non of the modern women's movement.
1: What... Betty Friedan was a. Was, there, there's a lot of confusion. No person is absolutely down the line perfect except Our Lady, of course. Sure, sure. <laughs> but but Betty Friedan had a lot of um, conflicts in her in her inside of her. Mm-hmm. Um, she had three children, and she'd never had an abortion. And she said that for her um, motherhood was delicious. Wow. She loved. She defended the family. She defended. Uh, she said we can't have. A feminism that doesn't have women who have children because most women want children. So she, but but wow. at the same time, at the same time, she was convinced by two men, mm. Lawrence later yep. and um, Bernard Nathanson, yep. who were the co-founders of Naral, Naral Pro-Choice America. Now, they convinced her. To insert abortion into the women's movement's bill of rights, and we don't quite know how she they they did that, but from what we can tell, they convinced her that she wouldn't get all her other rights um, passed by Congress if she didn't include abortion. Because mm. remember, this was a time when women were being fired for being pregnant. Right. right. So if you could say to the uh, to corporate America, it's okay, boys. She'll be on the pill, and if she's and if um, the pill fails, which it does, uh, she'll get an abortion. And so she'll be in charge of her, her reproductive rights, mm-hmm. and, uh, then it was maybe perhaps easier to get all of these other rights through Congress and into corporate America. So So the night that she inserted abortion in the women's movement, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Do you want to talk about that?
0: I I do, (laughs) but I'll have to wait till the break. So (laughs) hang on to that. We'll talk about the intellectual trap into which Betty Friedan fell and how it was set by two upper-class white men who had previously joined forces in the 60s to repeal all anti-abortion laws, We're talking here about Larry Later and Bernard Nathanson, who, of course, most of us remember from his uh, late-life uh, conversion to the pro-life movement and then to the Catholic faith. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Sue Ellen Browder. She is author, most recently, of Sex and the Catholic Feminist, New Choices for a New Generation. Before the break, we were talking about the intellectual trap uh, into which Betty Friedan fell uh, to include abortion as to being one of the foundational rights of the women's movement. You were going to tell us the story.
1: Yeah, it started, uh, it took me a long time to find out exactly how abortion was inserted in the women's movement. Remember, the women's movement was a battle for equal rights in academia and the workforce. Mm -hmm. Equal equal pay for equal work, stuff like that. And um, the sexual revolution was quite radically different. But the abortion was a demand of the sexual revolution, which Betty actually opposed. So how did that end up? Well, we think those two men convinced her to insert that abortion right in the women's movement. And the night that it happened, it was November eighteenth, 1967, in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel, and there were only about 100 people that had gathered that day to um, vote on a Bill of Rights that, that the National Organization for Women has continued to use for years, Their their Bill of Rights. And most of the things were things we could agree on: equal pay for equal work, sure. um, um, opening up academia to women. Mm-hmm. There were only there were only two rights they fought over. One was the ERA; that one's that one's now done for. Mm-hmm. Um, the other was the abortion right, and they fought over that until almost midnight. And by and people were screaming, and one person said, "I'm against murder." These are the original feminists. It sounds, you know, saying these things. And after the dust settled, only 57 people, a mere 57 people, voted to insert abortion in the women's movement. And one-third of those women walked out of the organization. These are the founders of now. Walked out of the organization and resigned over the abortion vote. Wow. And those women, where did those women go? But, in the, but the next Monday morning, Betty Friedan stands out, and, and this is how propaganda works. She tells the media that she's speaking for all women across America who want this abortion right to be free.
0: Oh. She was
1: speaking for 57 people and herself in the Chinese room. But she pretended to be speaking for everybody in America, and the media bought it. The Washington Post reported it, that the feminist movement, or the women's movement, has embraced the sexual revolution of our century. Wow. What a... what! And so that uh, was the joining of Together. That was the initial, that was the genesis moment, if you will, that joined the sexual revolution with the feminist movement, when they put abortion, a sexual revolution demand, into the women's movement.
0: That's amazing. You, you mentioned the ERA, and uh, something that I was unaware of until I read your book, uh, Alice Paul uh who originally had written the ERA back in the well 1930s or so uh right. one of the uh, suffragists who managed to get the 19th amendment passed she she opposed abortion and she thought that would be the, the, really the death of the ERA she did. Tell tell us about that. And tell us about Alice well, Paul, cuz she may not be that well known to many of us. Well,
1: Alice Paul spearheaded the um movement to give to that got women the right to vote, that got the um um 19th amendment passed. And this woman was a dynamo. Right. She had three law degrees. She was a Quaker. She she said that uh, abortion was the ultimate in the exploitation of women. Yep. Um, she and her silent sentinels stood in front of the White House for months and months and months picketing the White House to demand that President Woodrow Wilson speak up for a woman's right to vote. And they got thrown in prison. They, had, they were in a disease-infected workhouse they were given worm-infested soup to eat mm. she went on a um she began to protest by fasting and they the guards rammed a pipe down her throat into her stomach to make her eat i mean it was a terrible thing and this woman <laughs> people were saying you must stop this you can't you can't continue this and she says well, yes, you know, this, this must be uh, terrible. This is terrible for us, but it's not nearly so terrible as for the government. This is a- <laughs> she was very Christian. The, the administration has fired its heaviest gun. From now on, we shall win and they shall lose. <laughs> she was one tough cookie, yeah. and, and she did not give up. And, 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 and these were Christians. In that workhouse, they were saying prayers and singing and and supporting each other. People don't realize it was the Christians that gave us the right to vote.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, had she? I, I assume that by nineteen, uh, by the time the ERA got its, uh, you know, its its uh, chops in the nineteen seventies, she was by that time uh, probably quite old. And, and she, was <laughs> she was dead. She was dead.
1: Yeah, she had died, but she, but she had told somebody at Feminists for Life that they would interviewed her, and she blamed. She said she predicted the ERA would fall, and she blamed it on the abortion vote. Yeah, yeah, and she was right. Yeah, she was. She was. She was right. She had nothing to. She had no nothing good to say about that uh, sexual politics. Yeah, nothing at all. That was what, not her in her.
0: What became of the women who? wanted to resist abortion and the sexual politics corrupting the women's movement why why were they never able to form a you know a strong countervoice
1: Well, they did, you know. They formed an organization called the Women's Equity Action League. Mm -hmm. That one third of women who walked out, one of them was Elizabeth Betty Boyer. She went back to Cleveland and gave women the organization that she had promised them. And these women were lawyers and very, very bright ladies. And this is the kind of thing that they did. They went to the court, Congress and the courts, and they fought to open up academia to women, they forced newspapers to stop running "Help Wanted" male and "Help Wanted" female classified ads. You know, the, all the good jobs were right. men, and all the bad right. jobs were women. They defended a woman's right to serve on a jury. In some states, it, women were not allowed to serve on a jury. Mm-hmm. Um, they they worked to get girls sports programs in high schools. And they lobbied to get the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978 passed, which made it illegal to fire a woman for being pregnant. So these women, behind the scenes, did an enormous amount of work. But they just—they did not even want the credit because they didn't want to, these were employed women, and they didn't want their bosses to know that they were some of those crazy women out there <laughs> marching in the streets. Yeah. So the pro-life women, I think it's safe to say won an enormous amount of victories for women and the pro abortion uh, feminists took most of the media credit
0: isn't that something so that the the, yeah. the pro abortion uh, feminists are the ones that what did they have more media savvy was that it
1: yeah they did well yes because you know Betty Friedan was a reporter right. and she was a magazine writer and so she was very media savvy and she was one of the leaders and of course some of you know Kate Miller got her her picture on the front of the of Time magazine yeah, yeah. I mean yeah they they were definitely the the media darlings and and i make the point in sex and the catholic feminist that this the, this was a media event as much as anything the joining of the sexual revolution with the uh, feminist movement why because sex sells you put sex in the headline and people pay attention hmm. so that wow. was the, the media loved it media yeah. loved it yeah
0: yeah, I mean, I it's been it's been. I remember when uh, there was a group called Pro Life Feminists uh, for a while, and I can remember uh, Gloria Steinem coming through Detroit, and uh, I had a chance to interview her, and I asked her directly about abortion. Um, I, I didn't expect to learn anything new, but I thought I needed to ask her anyways, and she said that uh, without the uh, right to abort, there could be no real feminism, and I, it was just stunning. Uh, by saying well, that she, she had an abortion. Yeah. 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 A, a lot of a lot of um those women had troubled relations with men and over the over the years and um I think that probably had something to do with the uh, the way it worked its way out. I mean most most uh most people su- uh, probably would have supported the women's equity action league. Uh, in their agenda, yes. you know, um, yes. those seem like common sense uh, changes. Uh,
1: they were, and and they won. They won. They just they, did, it they got I them.
0: Think. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Now here's something interesting, though, Al, that people don't recognize that the pro-life movement is, well, I believe it is the authentic feminist movement of the 21st century, and in 1970, we've we've always been winning, but people don't know it because the media never reported. In 1979, the National Organization had 100,000 members. That's pretty good. The National Right to Life Committee alone. One one pro-life group had 11 million members, 110 mm-hmm. times as many. Interesting. And in 1976, opinion polls found a bare 1% of Americans considered abortion an important election issue. Yeah. And now look at it. Yeah, yeah. So we're winning. It's just we're not, we're not ever told we're winning. <laughs> yeah, well, it's difficult when you
0: don't control the largest of the um, media operations out there. We've got some. I mean, the rise That's of true. talk radio beginning in 1987 was a big step forward in getting the message out. And, of course, uh, Fox uh, News has helped uh, draw attention to conservative issues. But still, um, it's small potatoes compared to the the vast amount of uh, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, PBS, and uh, so many other MSNBC and cable like CNN. Uh, so the work—I mean—it's difficult to do the work uh, if you don't have the uh, if you don't have the media operations behind you these days. So, it is. Um, So tell me – why don't you tell us uh, how you decided it was – I mean, because it took you a while. You kind of moved uh, away from uh, Cosmo – but uh, it was a while before you came into full communion with the Catholic Church. W- what happened? What was your story like? Right,
1: right. Well, I moved away from Cosmo, and then I went to a, ma- a magazine that was actually doing fact checking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote. I wrote for the Reader's Digest. Um, uh-huh. I began to write uh, anti-sexual revolution stuff. I wrote an article called "Mom, I Want to Live in a Mom, I Want to Live with My Boyfriend," which was. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so during the 90s, I uh, I became much more, I was writing, you know, truth. And uh, then in 2003, well, 2002, my husband and I moved north to uh, California, and that's when we became Catholic.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much. Great talking with you again, Sue Ellen. I hope we can call on you. There's so much, uh, so many stories there to unpack, and I really thank you for taking the time today.
1: It's polite. Thank you. Call on me anytime.
0: All right, Sue Ellen Browder, sex and the Catholic feminist, new choices for a new generation. Uh, we'll have uh, Sue Ellen back in the future.